Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. As listeners of our show know, each and every week, a guest and I discuss the weekly Torah portion known in Hebrew as the parasha. This week, our parasha comes from the book of Numbers, beginning in Numbers 19 and carrying through Numbers 21. The name of the portion is Chukat in Hebrew, and Chukat has various meanings, but usually is understood or translated as laws. This week's Torah portion is ripe with many wonderful stories, though it begins with the laws of the red heifer whose ashes purify a person who is contaminated by contact with a dead body. Primarily, these laws are related to the priesthood, those who officiate at the sacrificial cult. After 40 years of journeying through the desert, the people of Israel arrive at the wilderness of Zin. We are told in this week's Torah portion that Miriam dies— and the people thirst for water. God tells Moses to speak to a rock and command it to give water. Moses gets angry at the rebellious Israelites and strikes the stone. In spite of disobeying God's order, water issues forth, but Moses is told by God that neither he nor Aaron will enter the promised land. Shortly thereafter, Aaron dies at Hor Ha'arar and is succeeded in the high priesthood by his son Eleazar. Venomous snakes attack the Israelite camp after yet another eruption of discontent in which the people speak out against God and Moses. God tells Moses to place a brass serpent upon a high pole and all who gaze up heavenward will be healed. The people sing a song in honor of the miraculous well that provided them water in the desert. The parasha ends by telling us that Moses leads the people in battle against the Amorite kings Sihon and Og, who tried to prevent Israel's passage through their territory on the way to the promised land, and Israel conquers their land, which lies east of the Jordan. You can follow this parasha in Numbers 19 through 21. With me this morning is one of the great congregational rabbis of our generation, Rabbi Stephen Foster of Denver, Colorado. He has been involved in Jewish life since an early age, and he was also involved as a young person in the civil rights movement in the United States in the 1960s, and decided that civil justice and social equality were preeminent as part of his consideration of being a religious leader. Rabbi Foster took his first position 
as an ordained rabbi at Temple Emmanuel in Denver, Colorado in 1970, and that served as his only congregational position until his retirement in 2010, nearly 40 years of serving the largest congregation in Colorado. He brings to his rabbinate a deep commitment to social justice, Jewish education, and Jewish continuity. His work in founding the Temple Emmanuel Preschool and Kindergarten and the Herzl Day School and Stepping Stones to a Jewish Me, an outreach program to interfaith families throughout North America, in addition to his far-reaching communal service, serving on the boards of Planned Parenthood of the Rocky Mountains and the National Council of Justice and Peace, United Way and Allied Jewish Federation demonstrate his commitment to both Jewish and secular community alike, and those who have studied with him will testify to his wisdom and his great skill as a teacher. It's a pleasure to invite Rabbi Stephen Foster to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Good morning. Uh, it's nice to be with you, Steve, but I, we got to correct a lot of that stuff that you just said. <laughs> <laughs> None of it was a lie. It might have been an exaggeration. A big exaggeration. Um, and, now, and now that I'm, uh, I've been retired for 11 years next week, um, honesty is the most important thing for me. So what would you like to correct for our audience? <laughs> a, a lot of, forget it. Let's just okay. move on. That's, because I don't think most of it is anything other than truth about the great gift thanks. that you've given to your community and to the thanks. world as a leader. And in Thank fact, you. this week's Torah portion is all about leadership. It's all about leadership. And, and unless uh, we want to talk about unless you want to talk about the red heifer. But then we got to get some Orthodox rabbis on to talk about that, and that's not. So me. we're going to skip the red heifer, Go though ahead. we will acknowledge that there are some ultra Orthodox rabbis in Israel who continue to try and clone a red heifer, which is discussed in uh, Numbers 19, as a means of reestablishing the temple sacrificial cult. But that may yeah. be beyond that's, that's our knowledge and our listeners' interest. But let's start right at the beginning with something that is interesting, I think, to most of our listeners. And that is, in a very brief sentence, we're told that Miriam dies. So why don't you remind our reader, our listeners, who Miriam is and why her death seems to be somewhat significant in this Torah portion? Well, I, I appreciate you asking that question. And I want to I tell you how I get to my answer. Um, my mother died um, at 59 years of age. I was 34, 35. And my rabbi, uh, my home rabbi from Milwaukee, his name was Dudley Weinberg. He, he died just a few months after my mother, but he and my mother were very close. I, I was very close with him. And when my mother died, uh, he gave the eulogy and he gave it precisely here. And my mother's name was Miriam. And so he started the started his eulogy by saying, Miriam died and the children of Israel were thirsty. And he made that connection about what it was about Miriam's death that created the thirst for the children of Israel. And it wasn't just the physical thirst from his perspective. It was an emotional thirst. It was the, she was a member of the sister of, of Moses and Aaron. And throughout the texts, 
and I don't mean this text, but other texts, she is seen as a compassionate um, woman leader within the context of, of the uh, sufferings of the children of Israel in the wilderness. And when she died, they became thirsty because they didn't have that warmth of that, in this case, that female touch um, that brought the kind of compassion that they needed. And so I've always made that connection between, uh, because for, my, for myself, my mother was that kind of person. She was a nurturing soul. And Miriam was that nurturing part of the, the relationships, the sibling relationships between she and, and Moses and Aaron. So I think it's a wonderful way because there was, there's no disconnect. If you look at the text, if you look at the text, Text says, Miriam died, and the next verse, and the children of Israel thirsted for water. And I just think, thought that that bridge between the two was a, is an important one. Um, it's interesting that you make that connection because Miriam is associated with water throughout the Torah text. We're first introduced to her as she takes her brother Moses um, and right. places him in the bulrushes and... Uh, watches over him in the water and then um, has the encounter with Pharaoh's daughter who finds him in the water. And um, when the Israelites begin their journey into the desert and they come to the uh, Sea of Reeds or the Red Sea, and we have the miracle of the splitting of the Red Sea. Um, after, or, the, or, or as many of us say, it's the Sea of Reeds not the Red Sea, because perhaps the waters didn't split as, as Cecil B. DeMille made it. Perhaps Correct. they walked through, but the but the uh, the horses and the chariots of Pharaoh couldn't make it through the mud. Right. So the wind, we're told, separates the water, and it might have been that it was just a marsh, and the chariots that followed were caught in the marsh. And at the end of uh, chapter 15, which is known as Shiratayam, a long poem, the song of the sea, we're told that Miriam and the women danced with timbrels um, right at the seashore. Um, and so Miriam is associated with this notion of thirst and of um, spiritual yearning. Um, and I think you were um, interested in how um, the Midrash has continued this dynamic of Miriam being a provider of um, um, water, but uh, not Different literally kind of water, water right. but um, the, mel the uh, well, the source. The source, the makor, the, right. source, uh, the source of what the people were about. Not just the physical water. Yes, the physical water plays its plays out as we begin to unpack this next part of the Torah portion. But um, it wasn't so much the physical as the as the emotional and the spiritual and the psychological. She's, she's kind of this um, hermeostatic hermeostatic um, antithesis to Moses and Aaron, who were presented as lawgivers. Correct and who get very angry at the people of Israel. And here's Miriam, who seems to be perhaps in a more 
um, classic female mold, um, the supportive one, the one who understands the people's needs in a very different way. Without question, without question. Uh, and, it's, and I think it's an important transition to the next part of the Torah portion because you know, that's about leadership. Yes, she was a leader, but a different, she was a very mellow, very soft, very gentle, very feminine leader. And that sometimes can be the, the real source of where people go. And that's why she died and the, the people were thirsty. In some sense, of course, we might say that it's stereotypic, but in the Torah, it's really uh, presented as the antithesis to Moses and Aaron. And as you suggested, the next part of the Torah portion, which I'm going to read for our listeners, because it leads us into this wonderful conversation about leadership. Um, So it reads... um, The people quarreled with Moses, saying, If only we had perished when our brothers perished in the instance of the Lord, referring back, I think, to the um, uh, story of the golden calf. Why have you brought the Lord's congregation into the wilderness for us and our beasts to die here? Why did you make us leave Egypt? There is not even water to drink. Moses and Aaron came away from the congregation to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. The presence of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, You and your brother Aaron take the rod and assemble the community, and before their very eyes order the rock to yield its water. Thus will you produce water from them from the rock and provide drink for the congregation and your beasts. Moses took the rod from before them, and parenthetically, this is the same rod that he would have used in Egypt and throughout the entire journey. Um, And he says, listen, you rebels, shall we get water for you out of this rock? And Moses raised his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. Out came copious water, and the community and their beasts drank But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust me enough to affirm my sanctity in the sight of the Israelite people, therefore you shall not lead uh, this congregation into the land that I have given with you. And those, now the text tells us, those are the waters of Meribah, meaning the Israelites quarreled with God, through which he affirmed his sanctity." So the usual question here, Rabbi Foster, is, was this a big enough sin to keep Moses from getting into the promised land after all he had done? Uh, so, yeah, I, listen, I, I appreciate this is a This is a classic story and, and the classic question that raised, because that's really the issue here. Um, a couple of things that I, I, I want to, I want to say at the beginning, number one, this is towards the end of those 40 years in the desert. You know, we we sort of tend, all of us, we sort of tend to view those 40 years as sort of one little thing that happened over a long period of time, but this is not the same. Uh, oh, okay. Okay. Um, is this better? Okay, good. So 
the, the truth is, is that the uh, children of Israel have now come to almost the end of their, there may be 38, 39 years, we're not really sure. And the question is, why if Moses had done everything as he had done, why is it that Moses is now told he cannot enter the promised land? What is it that he did? And not only Moses, but also Aaron. We sort of lose track of Aaron in all of this because it was Moses who struck the rock and it wasn't Aaron. So I want to I want to sort of separate the two because I think that there are two different reasons um, that they are forbidden to enter into the promised land. And I think they're both important. Um, first of all, Moses... And, and the text says um, you're, you're going to be punished because you did not hakti sheni. You didn't, you didn't sanctify me as the, the leader. And, and it was God who says this. You didn't sanctify. You didn't lift me up as the leader. You sort of decided that you will tell the people, what am I supposed to bring water from the rock? I didn't, as God says to Mo, I didn't tell you that you would bring water from the rock. I said, speak to the rock and water will come forth. And you sort of turned that and said, what am I supposed to bring water from the rock? As if Moses was in charge of all of the miracles in the desert. I mean, the, the plagues as well. So we have to understand that this is in the context of these 40 years. Moses is very angry at this new generation. Remember, that if we're towards the end of the process of entry into the promised land, it means that the generation of those who came out of slavery have mostly died. And that the people that Moses is now dealing with, with rare exception, is the new generation. And what's happening to Moses is Moses is seeing them as no different than their parents and grandparents who have now preceded them in death. And the whole issue for the, for the rabbis, for example, is that is it better for the children of Israel to have been slaves in Egypt? Or did they have to have this transition period in order to understand what freedom was about? And I, I really do believe that we have to look at that total context. And if Moses is striking the rock, not just once, but he struck it, Twice. That's why God really got angry. He said to Moses, you're the leader. You're supposed to lift up who I am. And you didn't. You almost made fun of me by striking the rock, even though water copiously came forth and everybody drank. But you did not sanctify me before the people. You didn't lift up my leadership as God. And you took it upon yourself. So I think that's one aspect of this. And it's an important aspect. We're dealing with that, whether it's secular politics or it's politics in Israel right now. We're dealing with all of that now. We're watching as political leaders um, are, are not necessarily uh, giving credence to what their role this leadership is. And I, I'm troubled by that as a congregational rabbi. That's what I deal with. I take a text 
And I'm not taking it out of context. I'm trying to use it in context to deal with the stuff that we're dealing with now. So that's one part of this thing with Moses. The second part, and I'm trying to do this all together, Steve, so that we can come back and talk about both of them. The second part is Aaron seems to be sort of a bystander in all this. Why? Why does Aaron also, as the brother of Moses, why does Aaron, even though he was the spokesperson very often uh, during the book of uh, Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and so on, during his 40 years, why does Aaron, who seems to be doing nothing, why does Aaron also have to die in the wilderness? And I think there's a different answer for that. We will remember that when the children of Israel, in the beginning of their crossing the, the Sea of Reeds, the Red Sea, being in the Sinai Desert, getting the Torah from Mount Sinai, and Moses goes up and he doesn't come back the first time, and the children of Israel build a golden calf, and Aaron didn't help there either. In many cases, he's the enabler of it. Uh, that's my point. He is the he's the silence. And why is it that that he didn't say something to Moses now and say, Moses, you can't do this. This is not the appropriate way of dealing with the people and dealing with God. But he didn't. And I believe that the reason God also punishes Aaron is because he failed through his silence, and he was the enabler in many cases um, of what has happened in the wilderness. So I think the lesson there for us is we cannot be enablers. We, we have to be, if we're going to be leaders, and I don't care whether it's in the congregational rabbinate or in the ministry or in the priest, it doesn't matter. If we have a particular value set that we believe comes to us from text. We have to stand up for that, and we have to always make sure that people understand what those values are. So you said at the beginning, I just want to say one more. I just want sure, to say one more. Go ahead. You said at the beginning, you know, I, I was on the march from Selma to Montgomery 55 years ago, right? Before Joyce and I got married. Even. Before the movie came out. Absolutely. And and I believe that while I was still a college student, I was a senior in college, I believed that that is where I should have been. It made a difference to me. When I was walking down that street with 150,000 other people, we didn't march from Selma to Montgomery. We marched the last 12 miles. That's where most people got on the march. We marched at the end, but we were there because we wanted to make sure that our voices were heard. And I believe that's where Aaron failed. He didn't allow his voice to be heard. You know, I'm done. Well, I mean... Sorry that takes so long. <laughs> um, I want to thank you for the insight, but I want to push you a little bit more because it seems that what you're suggesting is both um, Moses and Aaron... Um, forgot what their um, goal was as leaders. Um, 
And we do have that dynamic and dilemma today in um, the political environment in the United States and Canada and other countries. And we certainly have it in religious denominations. I mean, God seems to be saying, um, look, you were supposed to help the people understand who I am, not who you are. Correct. Um, You get angry at the people, and in your anger, you deny who God is. Um, And it's not about you. Um, It's about something more important than you and what you represent. And we began the conversation this morning talking about Miriam and what she represented more than Miriam herself. And maybe that's the nice counterbalance in this story that when you introduced Miriam, it wasn't that Miriam did a hundred things and that she aggrandized herself, is that she represented a dynamic among people absolutely, and an empathy and a spiritual um, focus, kind of a more narrow tunnel vision of leadership. And it was a different, for both of them, for Aaron and for was a different, for each of them, it was a different kind of leadership. It wasn't that they were in all of this together. They each had a responsibility. Moses was the tangential head, the leader. But Aaron wasn't down here, way down. He was right next to him because throughout the history in the desert, Aaron was the spokesperson. So he was very often the person who was called upon. And he could have used his own character to have kept the children of Israel focused on who it is that has brought them out of Egypt, who it is that was bringing them into the promised land, because this is a new generation, it's a generation of freedom. And I think we have to remember that. We're in a new generation now. Um, well, it is a new generation, and I suppose in many ways, um, religious leaders of new generations have different dynamics than you and I had at an earlier generation, and you told the foundational story of marching in Selma, and I'm not sure what the foundational stories are for new clergy, um, but we shall discover whether those clergy recognize um, the power of this story with regard to what our responsibilities are as leaders. My guest this morning was Rabbi Stephen Foster of Denver, Colorado. I want to thank him for sharing his wisdom with us. You can find a podcast of this morning's show on chri.ca website or as a podcast on iTunes under Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. For our show, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten, uh, thanking you for joining us, wishing you a good day, and shalom. Behold.